Thank you. Boy, it's bright up here. How do you guys like, how do you guys like the lights that they got up here? It's pretty bright. That's all I got to say. All right, I'm going to figure this out at some point. Yeah, there it is. I have this little stand I got. My tablet so I can see it better. Technology. Okay, so um, as I told you earlier, we are um, going to be going through the book of Esther. And you know, uh, this book has amazing relevance for us in the difficult times that we're living in. Um, you know, I hear it say, you know, the Bible's an ancient book. But you know what? It's timeless because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it speaks across the centuries. And, and it instructs us, the 21st century church, on how God wants us to live. So what doesn't change are people. We're the same. We have the same condition. Uh, and God has plan and God has a purpose for, in this particular case, his people Israel and the Jews. We're going to discover that God's going to use Esther and she's challenged by threats. She, uh, she has difficulties and perils that she's going to face. That's what we're going to see. And those challenges were met by courage conviction, and those things come from God alone. We're going to see that in her story. Pretty amazing, her ascension. She's an adopted uh, girl, adopted by her uncle, and uh, she's in a place, the setting is found in Persia. They're there because of captivity some 70 years earlier when uh, Babylon swept down into Israel and took them exile. At this particular part of the story, though, it's no longer Babylon that's the power, it's the Persians. So there's a lot to learn from her. And uh, I think we're going to really enjoy and see how God is faithful to what he's doing in our lives, especially his people. In this particular case with us, it's with the church. Amen. So again and again, um, in times of crisis, there always are decisions that need to be made. How many of you know that? How many of you have come to see that? You're faced with a crisis. God puts you in a place where you have to make a decision. Yes. Your character is revealed. What you truly believe comes out. Yes. And that's what the trials are for. So, in the Bible, there's only two books that never mention the name of God. And one of them is Esther. You'll never see the name Elohim. You'll never see the name Yahweh. You'll never see the Lord said or um, God chose. It, you never hear anything. But what you see is he's active. Anybody know what the other book is where the name of God is never mentioned? Anyone know? Song of Solomon. Never see the name of the Lord in there either. So, 
Where is God then? And that's the question in this book as you read it. Where is God? And I don't know if you've ever asked that of the Lord when you're struggling, when you're living in a season of darkness and difficulty. And that's the thing that we're going to try and answer, and I think it's a great question. And we're going to see that throughout the whole Old Testament, God is mentioned all the time. Even if we consider in Eden, we know he's the creator. If we look at Abraham's calling, we know he's the one that prompted Abraham. If we look at Moses, we're the, we know that God chose that man for the specific time to lead his people out of Egypt. When they're in the promised land, there's Joshua. God always has someone, right? that he's using for his purposes and for his people. And so what we're going to see here then is that there's no mention of visions like Daniel had. There's no mentions or concern for God's law that had been abandoned like Ezra mentions. There's no uh, Red Sea splitting. There's no manna falling from heaven. There, there's nothing like what we would see in all of the Old Testament. God's moving, but he is moving. And I have to say this. Um, one of the things that I really felt is important to stress is when you feel that God is absent, when you feel that he's not present, he is. So what does that bring us to? Well, we know something. I want to kind of come up with an idea here. Uh, it's called, uh, and I think this, this story relates to something that we could call quiet providence. Providence, of course, remember we looked at that word when we went through Joseph. It's what the theologians use to describe God's continuous control over history. So one of the things that we know about God is that he wrote history in advance and he's absolutely in control of history, the nations. Acts says that he's even in control of the geography of the nations. You know? Where the United States is positioned ge geographically matters. She's protected by two oceans. It matters. The fact that Israel is in the Middle East, surrounded by enemies, that was God's plan. The fact that you have a country, for instance, like Britain, who is a, it's an island and a great empire at one time in history, was never conquered, even though attempts were made in the Second World War. Why? Because it was separated from Europe. All Everything is under God's control. And that's what we're going to see in the book of, of Esther. He's there, even though we don't hear, or his name is never mentioned once. He never leaves. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you to us in the New Testament. He said the same thing to Joshua, that he was with them. He told him to be courageous, right? To be brave, to go into the promised land. I am with you. Someone sent me a, a text uh, recently, or uh, gave me a card recently with that verse in it. And it was so perfectly timed. Ah, oh, man, do we need to hear from God and know that he's with us in certain seasons of our life, right? 
That's what's going on with Esther. So it's quiet providence, or we could say it this way. We have a God that whispers. It's not just loud. It's not just spectacular in that he spoke as according to Hebrews 1.3, and it says that the universe is governed by his authority. It says literally he sustains all things by his powerful word. He is powerful. But one of the things, too, that we know about him is that he comes to us in a still, small voice. He's in us. He speaks to our heart, doesn't he? We don't always... He doesn't always need to be loud to prove he's strong. We don't always have to see his shadow to know he's present. God still working. God's still effective. Even in what we see as his silence, he's still active and he appears when we think he's distant. So when we have that temptation to ask, where are you? Know that he's there. There's a word that's used by the theologians who call omnipresent. He's always present. He can't not be there. Right? How does that make us feel? He's always with us. He's always present. He's always working his plan and his purposes out. So, in this book of Esther, by the way, the name Esther is not her Hebrew name. There's another name for her in, in the Hebrew. I'll give that to you another week. I want to keep that in suspense. But her name means Venus or the morning star. So she's the morning bright star and a dark season for the Jews in Persia. And what we're going to discover with the book of Esther is that in spite of all the injustices, in spite of the evil in the world, in spite of the fact that sometimes we think these things have turned uh, uh, the world on, their, on, on its head, everything's perplexing, everything's confusing because I'm sure that's what they thought when we feel as though everything's falling apart, when we don't hear from God, when we wish and ask the question, where are you? We can know that he's working and he what looks to be falling apart is actually him putting things together. There's a song about that, isn't there? Right? I think it's by Casting Crowns. So this woman is going to be the, the main character in this. And we're going to run into a couple others. Well, one of them is the king of Persia. So let's look at verse, and you can see up here in the book of Esther, um, the, the title of this series is For Such a Time as This. Because at some point in this book, she's faced with the decision as queen to go to the king, her husband, and to reveal that there is a conspiracy, if you would, being worked out by one of the antagonists, the, the, the bad guy in the story, Haman, to destroy or to commit genocide against the Jews, to destroy them as a nation. He would be the equivalent at the time of Israel's uh, exile in Persia. He'd be the equivalent in the Old Testament of the modern-day Hitler in Germany. I'm not too sure that Hitler didn't get some ideas from Haman. Extermination, a genocide of a, of a people. 
That's what she was facing. And so when she had to make a decision in a conversation with Mordecai, it comes up and it's said, well, perhaps this is the reason. This is your decision because you have come for such a time as this. Decision-making. Christians have to make decisions. God's people have to make decisions when we're faced with calamity, when we're faced with temptation, when we're faced with wanting to give up because this struggle is difficult. We have to make decisions, and that only can be done. That kind of courage and that kind of faith can only come with God's help. But we have our eyes wide open. We don't hide our head in the sand. We face what we face, and we take it on in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. We don't have to hide. We have the Lord with us. Even though it appears by what's going on that he's not there. You ever get, get that feeling? We have to be honest if we're going to let this story really impact us. So now I'm going to read parts of this. There's some names in here that I'm going to admit to you, and I listened to the audio part of it for a couple times to see if I could get the names right. But I'm going to have you guys stand. I'm going to read at least the first nine verses to get the feel for the beginning of the story. So the king here is uh, Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Xerxes in the Greek. Okay, so he has a Greek name and he also has a Persian name. So it says, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, see I told you I had a struggle with those names. <laughs> the Ahasuerus who reigned, listen to this, who reigned, from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, which would be the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. By the way, this guy liked a party. The army of Persia and uh, Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the guard of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver with a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels. Let me repeat that one again. Drinks were so, so served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, but the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vasti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Let's just stop there because I think we can dig around for a little bit and learn a little bit about 
who this man is and what was going on in this in this Persian kingdom. So let's pray first for the sermon. Father, thank you. We are so grateful, Lord, for an opportunity to wrestle with the, this story, with this text, so so as to come up, Lord, with uh, the correct understanding and interpretation that would benefit us, Lord. We ask for your help, and uh, we thank you because we know we have the Holy Spirit, and we have you with us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can have a seat. So this is introduction. I don't want to bore you, but I want to give you a background. So one of the theories of expository teaching, that's what I do, is that you got to have context. you got to have an understanding of who, what, when, where, and why. And one of the things that we understand, this is the city of Susa. It's the 5th century B.C., 500 years before Christ. It's Persia, which today is modern-day Iran. Okay? This empire was to it its day what Rome was in the first century. Powerful. This Persia is what the United States is in the 21st century. And hopefully we're not seeing this fast decline as it becomes more and more godless. So, the Persian Empire was the largest empire the world had ever known at that time. Alright? What did it go from? It says that it was from India to Ethiopia. So, who is um, this man Ahasuerus? Who is he? Well, he's, he's the son of Darius the first, or known as Darius the Great. We know about Darius also from the scriptures. Right? He's the one that gave permission to the Jews to return to build the temple. Amen? Remember the, those days? Okay, so just so you're aware, uh, the time is like 522 before Christ to 486, so that's the time frame. Roughly 500 years. Okay? Listen to this. It controlled the territory of 2.9 million square miles. Okay, what does that mean? So, that means that 44% of the world's population lived in Persia at that time. That's crazy. And another interesting fact, they're saying that that population was roughly 50 million people. That's pretty amazing for an ancient world. It stretched, that is, this empire, 4,464 miles. And to be able to get an idea of what that meant, if you were to walk from Los Angeles to Atlanta and then turn around and walk back, to Los Angeles, you would then be covering the territory of the Persians. So if you took a map of the United States and copied it, and then stuck another one right next to it, that would be the expanse of this particular empire, the breadth of its empire. Why am I mentioning that? This is a powerful man. Not just some man. It's not just, oh, I'm going to go talk to Pastor Robert. I mean, okay. You know, I'm in charge of me, myself, and I. I mean, that, you know what I mean? It's a big difference. Queen Esther, within the context of the laws and culture of that time in Persia, let's not be judgmental. When we look at the customs and we look at the culture and we look what was allowed, that's what it was. Right? That's how they lived. That's normal. 
acceptable. Maybe not liked. So here she comes later in the story, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, because part of what I like to do is give you a little bit big, broad strokes. She's going to have to plead with her husband, but he's also the king, to remove an edict that he had established for the elimination of the Jews, being one herself. And by the way, he didn't know she was a Jew. That was hidden. They hid it. So, check this out. If we were to look at how large this empire was, it would cover today's Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, parts of modern-day Egypt, Sudan, Libya, Arabia, and India. That's pretty big. Just look on, go to the back of your Bible and look at maps. And you'll see how big this was. King Ahasuerus, that's the Hebrew, is well known in history under the name Xerxes, which is the Greek, inherited this empire from, as I mentioned earlier, Darius I. And if you want to know a little bit, and those of you that are real serious Bible students, I want to see you writing. It's found in Ezra 4.24, Ezra 5, verses 5 through 7, Ezra 6, 1 through 15, Daniel 6, 1, Daniel 6, 25, Haggai 1, 15, and Haggai 2, 10. And I bet you couldn't keep up with me. So you're going to come and look for me after the service, and that way I really know, and I can give you the stamp of approval as a serious Bible student, because you're going to check me. But there you'll find Darius's name. And the fact of the existence of this king, and here's another thing too, people actually today deny that Jesus existed. They didn't exist, they just wrote that story. These guys, the 12 disciples, had nothing better to do. They're trying to save face because they, they apparently say they walked with a certain person and that person claimed to be the Son of God and he talks about an eternal kingdom and then they find, then he dies and, oh my goodness, all our hopes are dashed. Uh, we'll just make up this story about Jesus. There are people that claim that. But there is a writer in the... In, in, uh, that wrote for the Romans, anybody know his name? That has proof in his writings has nothing to do with the Bible. They're external to the Bible. Anybody remember his name? No? Neither do I. But I'll get the, I'll get the information for you. <laughs> I forgot his name. Told you we were going to have fun on this. So anyway, as far as this king existing, it's the archaeologists have discovered the ruins there in Persia, uh, the very palace where these things happen. So his, he's historical. So just to give you a little bit of context, in 40 years from the time of the story, uh, Ahas, uh, Ahasuerus, uh, Ahasuerus uh, is going to uh, witness the return of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. So this is 40 years before the rebuilt walls. But the temple had already been rebuilt 30 years before by Ezra. So that's the time frames. Not all the Jews returned. Did you know that? Some just stayed where they were. That happens when you have people that are migrant, in this case, exile. So here's the background. It's 30 years, this story taking place after the temple of Solomon was rebuilt, but not in its glory that it had before. And it's 40 years uh, before Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. Okay? 
So, who is this man? When you read the story about three feasts, what do we know? What do we tell us about him? And it talks about golden goblets. And what do we know? What does it say about that he gave the freedom to people to choose if they wanted to drink as much as they Because what would happen is this, you only drank as much as the king. So if so, it's like they say, don't eat, don't eat before the host eats, right? You're waiting for the host to like bite into the, you know, big piece of fried chicken and you're all hungry. You don't start, you wait for the host. Well, he said, it's okay guys, just drink whatever you want, if you want. He gave liberty. So one of the things we know about him, and it's going to be a big problem, is that he had an excessive thirst for wine. It's a fancy way of saying he was an alcoholic. <laughs> he was... What happens when you're drunk? Your inhibitions drop. You make decisions that are foolish that you wouldn't normally do, or your truth... They say it's the truth serum. Someone just starts speaking the truth. Well, I never liked you, by the way, now that we're at this point. And just to start saying everything. No filters. So we know these. Also, uh, we can say that he's an accomplished drinker. Because he's the king. They probably gave him some kind of certificate. Like, this man is approved drinker, and all the rest of us are too. Because as a leader, what about the rest of the people in that, those feasts? It's the same thing. Do whatever they want, because he is. They're important what the leader does. So, we also know from decisions he will make that he was not much of a thinker. <laughs> I mean, how can I say this? There was not a lot going on upstairs. <laughs> not known for his great thinking and decrees. His decrees were foolish. They were all done on a whim. We also know that, again, he would delegate a lot of decisions for other people to do, like Haman eventually. He would come, hey, I got this idea. And then he would just, okay. So that's the kind of person this is. I'm trying to give you guys a little bit of background before we get too far into it. Another thing that's noticed is that he didn't have strong convictions and they changed like the weather does. In other words, if you caught him at the, at the wrong time and he wasn't in the right mood, he would agree to genocide. If one of his people came to him and said, hey, you know what, I think we should eliminate the Jews. Okay. Again, not a profound thinker. Moody. Right? Under the influence not the best person to lead a nation, even a pagan nation. And they would suffer because of him. He was also arrogant and full of pride. Look what he did. He brought all the people in and he showed off. Oh, look at my, my kingdom. Look at, look at the gold. Look at, look at the, everything was marble and gold and fine linen. And so he's, he was not, not a humble person, 
What does God say about humility and what, what will he do with the humble? He'll lift them up. What will we do with the proud? He'll bring them down. So this man's setting himself up for God's judgment. So no, 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 uh, no humility, full of pride, arrogant, whimsical, moody, clueless, godless. So he wants to impress all of his subjects with his great display of wealth and power and majesty. And what we've got here is a disaster waiting to happen. But God always has someone in the midst to put us back on our moorings, to put us back in the right direction. Her name is Esther. Isn't that awesome? And so um, that's that's the deal with uh, with this guy uh, Xerxes. So something happened that we read. There are these three feasts that go on. By the way, Vasti also gave a feast for the women uh, in the palace. So there's three parties going on. They're 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 party animals. They're uh, they live la vida loca. Guess, I, I'm trying to give you this picture. By the way, there's one other characteristic or attribute of his that's going to doom him. He's a man of anger. He's easily moved to wrath. What does a man that has no control of his anger do? Destroy destroyer. The characteristics of Satan. He's a destroyer. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy, Jesus said. And in his sights, because of the counsel of another evil man, a Hitler-like man, Haman, he agrees on an edict to destroy God's people. Who is really behind the destruction of God's people? Who's really behind attacking the church? Satan. Satan. We live in a world that's under spiritual warfare. Principalities and power in the air. According to Ephesians chapter 6, we're to put on the whole armor of God because this is a battleground, not a playground. You know, and that's kind of the scenario here. We put it into the context of the New Testament, the same thing, right? So he has, verse 10, we'll move on, I don't know, we got the signal up there, back here. Yeah, verse 10. Queen Vasti refuses a request of his. So let's read about it. Okay? It says, on the seventh day when the Part of the king was merry with wine. Okay, so let me go back and what does that mean? The heart of the king was merry with wine. He was juiced up. He was drunk. Buzz driving this, but uh, drunk driving. You ever see that on the freeway? Buzz driving this, drunk driving. Well, Buzz decision-making is 
drunk decision making, which is never a good thing. All right? For the Christian, we're to be filled with what? The Spirit and not with wine. Just a different kind of buzz, right? People accuse Christians of being high. Uh, hallelujahs out there. Yeah. <laughs> Praising the Lord because we're filled with the Spirit. Right? They accused on the day of Pentecost, as they observed them, as the Spirit fell on the church, they accused them of being drunk. Right, Brother Jeremy? That's right. But they were happy in a godly way. They were joyful because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So in this particular section, it says on the seventh day, uh, this is remember, this is party number two. When the heart of the king was married, he commanded Mehuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigtha. That's the next name for if you were looking for a name for your sons, Bitha. There you go. Right? Bitha. Right? And then, of course, there's Abakta, Zethar, and Carcass. I don't think you want to name your, your sons Carcass. That sounds a little too much, too deadly. Right? The seventh eunuchs, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King uh, Ahasuerus. They, they command, basically to bring, they commanded to bring Queen Vasti before the king with her royal crown. Well, I mean, now that we're showing off stuff in the kingdom, you know, the palaces and the courts and the gardens and the gold and the fine linen and the food and the feet. Now that we're showing off, hey, dude, why don't you show off your wife? This is what happened here. I read some stuff. They wanted her to be dressed modestly from what I read. And it was Hebrew commentary by the, because uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of commentary in the Jewish literature. The suggestion was they wanted her naked. I don't have any problem believing that. Look at what's going on today. Just really, I mean, almost to the point to where there's anything's acceptable, pretty much. Pretty much soft porn anymore on any of the major um, media apps. There's no, remember, there's no limits. There's no restraint. It's a godless society. And now the man who's drunk has been challenged by these princes and these leaders that were partying with him to, to bring out his wife, to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. Because guess what? She was beautiful. No? For she was lovely to look at. 
as we would say today, she was eye candy. Bring your wife out and show her off too. Yeah, see what's going on here. Do you see what kind of a leader this is and what kind of a kingdom this is? Oh, there's one more thing that I could say at this point about King uh, Ahasuerus is that he had a total disregard for women. And this is demonstrated by the treatment of his wife. Right? Not a smart move, guys. Not well thought out. That's why I told you earlier he didn't have much up here. That's the last thing you would want to do. And what does she do? And so we have another person coming into the story, Queen Vashti. Vashti. She refused. Man, we need to learn to say no sometimes. Let's, uh, let's do it. Let's practice. When you are tempted or when you're asked to do something as a believer, in this case, she's not even a believer. That's the, uh, this is the part that surprises me. She actually has character and dignity and respect. And how much more should the church have character and dignity and respect in our relationships with one another? God have mercy on us. We're supposed to be the example of the best of relationships because we claim to have a relationship with the one who loved us. And he said, love one another as I have loved you. Forgive one another as I've forgiven you. But yet we, we as a church, we're weak in that area. Uh, well, some churches, not, not this one. And in this particular case, yeah, we're told in the Bible, I'm doing marriage counseling for a wedding next Saturday. And there's to be a submission of the wife to her husband. And the, the same thing, the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave him support. There is order. There is a plan and God, God and marriages that are godly. But never, the rule is that if what your husband asks of you goes against God's law, you're to say no. So let's say it together. Let's all learn to practice and say no. Someone comes to you and says, hey, I want you to do this, that, and the other thing. Let's say, say it together. One, two, three. No. no. I mean, it's what they do in the schools. I work as a teacher. There's a program, Say No to Drugs, that's been on for a while. Amen. You say no to drugs. Amen. You teach them from their little. Say no. We got to learn to say no. Amen. No, I'm not doing that. Amen. I mean, if you don't have the, the, the conviction or the strength to say no, say, oh, I'm sorry, I have an appointment at five. <laughs> Leave. I don't know. how. Re refuse is what she did. <laughs> Refuse. <laughs> I mean, if Papa were to tell Tanya, I want you to shave your hair, she's going to say, No. 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 <laughs> Good girl. <laughs> I like all women. No. <laughs> we don't, why is it so hard for us to say no? It's, it's about having integrity. It's about having dignity because we have dignity and integrity because we learn that's how God treats us. Even as sinners, he teaches us with dignity. He gives us free will and he waits on us Amen. to make the right decision. Yes, he does. 
He warns us of judgment to come, but he doesn't just eliminate us like, oh, you don't want to agree with me. He doesn't just pour out his wrath. But this man, this king, when she refused to come, verse 12, at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs, that is, that they took it over there to him, to her. And at this time, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. This reveals us who this is. He had no regard for his wife. And, think about this with me, he was more concerned about impressing others. Do not live your life as a man pleaser. Do not live your life wondering what others think about you and their opinion. And that's how you go from one decision to another decision that are at the opposite end of the scope. And you're like a wind, that uh, a wave in the ocean that just goes back and forth. You have no foundation. No, you're no. Jesus says, or Paul said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Period. Come, some people come to me like ask me stuff and honestly I don't know at the moment or I don't want to make a decision because how about giving me an opportunity to pray Amen. so you know what I say and pray about it let me think about it I don't know but if it's something I don't know it should be no if it's something that's yes yes let your nay be nay and your yes be yes your yay be yay Paul said that because we're, peer, we're people of conviction. We're people that understand truth. And we have to live in that truth. Whatever the price. Because the price for her is high. That is Queen Vasti. It's going to be high. We're going to read about it later. But so far, how's the introduction? You want to get a little picture of who this is? to understand that there are evil people out there that could care less about God and God's ways. They have their laws, but they're always convenient. Right? We have rules, but as long as they benefit me and not everyone, it's fine. Just look at Congress right now. You can be purchased by special interests. And once you get the position, you can use the position to benefit yourself. And that goes for both sides of the aisle. There's a lot, there's corruption out there. But we're God's people. Amen? Amen. We're God's people. Amen. We live differently. And Esther is going to teach us that. But, at, 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 but what's amazing in this story, though, is that a pagan queen is teaching us that. She's refused. So then the king who lives as a men pleaser or always trying to impress others. Wow, what a terrible way to live. Because you know what happens at the end of the day? You don't get to be really free. You're a slave to that desire to be, to have approval of men. Or that desire to be um, affirmed by men. I mean, people talk about it, and I, I have a little bit of reading and studies in behavioral science. Affirmation is a big deal. 
but you got to learn to who to get the affirmation from. And I'll never forget my pastor 40 years ago, and I have it in one of my old Bibles. I wrote it down, and it's still there, and I go look at it every now. The number one approval that I seek is not that of men. The number one approval I seek is that of God. Amen. And in this particular case, she was just following a basic rule of life. It's called respect. No, I'm not going out there to be shown off. Woman of beauty has her own burdens. It's a lot of power. And a lot of harassment, too. And she's being harassed right now by her husband, the king. Then the king, I didn't even put it up on, I didn't think I'd get this far. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him, this is where I was kind of dreading having to read this part. Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mechican. Memukin. Memukin. Oh, what a name. Memukin. It says there in verse 14. The seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So these were men that were like up with him on his table. And when the eunuchs came back and said, Psst. Hey, King Xerxes. Um, she said, no. Um, King Xerxes. She told me to tell you, no way, Jose. I'm not going to believe it, King. She said, too bad, so sad. She said, see you, wouldn't want to be you. And whether it's he, his face, these that saw the king's response, right? They says there in the last part of 14, these, these, these princes saw the king's face and, and sat at the first in the kingdom according to the law. So now they're going to bring out the law. What is to be done to Queen Vasti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Now he's faced with even a greater dilemma. He's got to save face because the law required that the wives were obedient to their husbands, not in a godly way. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to leave the rest of this for next week so that you guys, because I know you're dying to hear what happens, right? So this is just a preview. This is just an introduction. This is stuff that happens in everyday life. Everyday life when you don't know God. A godless society is eventually doomed. That's the story. And when 
There are those who would refuse to live ungodly, would choose rather to live a holy life before God, a faithful life to God, then you will be threatened with annihilation. There will be persecution if you live godly, Paul would say. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. He's not talking about the great tribulation of the book of Revelation. That's God's wrath on man. In the world you will have tribulation or persecution because you live for God. You will be attacked by, attacked by those who are opposed to God, just like Jesus was. And that's the context of what he said. said. In the world you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer though, George. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, Jesus would say. Right? So, that's what we have for today. Let's uh, bow our heads and let's thank God that he is ever present in our lives. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. A million times, thank you. Thank you for your word that just kind of puts everything in perspective. It's a compass for us to guide us and lead us and not take us down the wrong path. Thank you for your word, Lord, which is truth, a light to our path that we can look to, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that having read uh, at least this introduction, Lord, that we're in for more golden nuggets on how to live what it means to be a man or a woman of faith, what it means to follow you, the price and cost of discipleship. Thank you, Father, because it can never be a cost, Lord, big enough to keep us from you because in actuality, you already made the payment. We simply receive what's a free gift. Help us not to look lightly on this free gift of salvation. Help us not to um, not give uh, so great a salvation the weight of importance that it has and, and to be grateful, Lord, and humble. And most importantly, to, to know, Lord, that we love you because you first loved us. And that's enough. And the humility, Lord, to know that we're in a position as your adopted sons and daughters because of the finished work of Christ at Calvary's cross. We're in if we say yes to Jesus. And that's our prayer. That's our understanding this morning, Lord, as we see that there is a world out there that doesn't know you and it operates completely different. But we have your word. We have your commands. We have, Lord, your promises, and we have hope. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.